from our study in 1 Peter as we observe what Christians have called for many centuries Passion Week, which is the week where we remember the events that led up to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so today begins that week. It is the day that we Christians know as Palm Sunday. This day marks the beginning of this last week of Jesus' life, a week that concludes with the celebration of His resurrection. And while every Sunday to the Christian is a celebration of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, we do set aside one particular Sunday each year for a special celebration. And I think it's fitting that we do so because this is the centerpiece of the Christian calendar, of the Christian life. Have you ever noticed it's not Christmas? I know we, we tend to make more of a big deal about Christmas, right? But only two of the four Gospels cover Christmas. All four of them cover Easter. <laughs> All four of them deal with the resurrection of Christ. And that is important. That is on purpose. And so our celebration of Easter is a week-long focus. Remembering the events that led up, not just to His resurrection, but to His death. During this week, as Jesus lived it, He will celebrate the Passover with His disciples. That too is significant because He will become the ultimate Passover lamb. There is a reason that this holiday coincides with Passover. All of the events of this week will culminate in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so today is Palm Sunday, the day which marks the beginning of this final week of Jesus Christ, this Passion Week, with the arrival of Jesus into Jerusalem, for the last time. This is where our text for today picks up. We're going to look at John chapter 12, verses 12 through 16. Please follow along with me as I read. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, that is the feast of Passover, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him, and had been done to him. As we've already mentioned today, this passage records for us sort of a, a snapshot of an account that we call the triumphal entry. It's a bit ironic seeing that he rode into the city on a donkey. And when you consider the other aspects of what is going on here, when you think of a triumphal royal 
entrance into a city, you likely would not put together a scene that looks like this one. But what happens here is crucial. It's intentional. It is meant to show us a little something about who Jesus really is and what he really came to do. This scene was actually meant, I believe, to confound some false expectations and to bring a little bit of a corrective viewpoint because so many people misunderstood who Jesus was and what he was really doing here, including the crowd that we're going to see this morning. The other Gospels give several more details as to what happened in this moment. For instance, what we read this morning in Matthew, right? When Jesus sends his disciples to, to get the donkey and, and where it came from and how they actually made that happen and, and all of the other details that led up to it, the, the Apostle John in his Gospel doesn't record all of those details. But instead, he writes for a particular purpose. He writes for the purpose of pointing out the, the kingship and the divinity of Jesus Christ and that he is the savior of his people. And then he turns our attention specifically to the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies about the salvation that God has planned for his people and the savior that he has promised to send. And so there are many details in this account and throughout this week, Jesus will enter the city. He will go straight into the temple from here and he will survey it, but then he will leave and then he'll go back out to the town of Bethany for the night. Then he'll return the next day. And the next day he will go into the temple and he will drive out the money changers and the, the peddlers from the temple complex. He will do it now for a second time in his life and he will do it as a proclamation of judgment on their false religion that they had fallen into there this will spark a series of confrontations and conversations throughout this last week that will culminate in his crucifixion but the focus of all of this is not specifically on each little detail but on what those details show us about who Jesus really is what kind of a king he really is, and what kind of a kingdom he really came to establish. The purpose is to show that Jesus is God in human flesh, that he is the Savior who had been long expected, and we are to respond to that revelation in a particular way. And so, in these few verses, there are two significant Old Testament quotations, and they all reveal to us who Jesus is and what he came to do. And as we move through this, this passage, line by line, verse by verse, there are several key themes that we need to consider this morning. The timing of all of this. We want to consider the branches, the palm branches that they used. We want to consider the praise song that they sang. And we want to consider even the donkey on which Jesus rode. No, that's not our outline for this morning. But those are the key ideas, key elements of the story. And they have some significance. And we'll note that as we go along. 
What is happening here is a prophetic event. And by that, I don't mean specifically that it is predicting the future. Although, what is happening here gives us a glimpse of a second return, a second arrival of Jesus in the future, still yet to be realized, when he will arrive, not riding on a donkey, but he will arrive triumphantly, truly triumphantly, riding on a war horse. But that is not what's happening here. This, when I say prophetic, what I mean is it is proclaiming to us the truth about who Jesus is. This is a prophetic event revealing to us Jesus as the King. And so as we look at this text, I want us to notice, first of all, the prophetic timeline of this event. That is the outline we're working through. First of all, the prophetic timeline. Verse 12 says, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, that is the feast of Passover, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. There is something significant to that phrase, the next day. Especially as we see it in the timeline of Jesus' life. And I want us to stop for a moment and consider that. Back in verse 1 of chapter 12, we have another time reference. It says, six days before the Passover. All right, so chapter 1 picks up the week of Passover, six days before. That was when Jesus arrived at Bethany and prepared to enter into Jerusalem on the donkey. What happens beginning in verse 12 then happens the next day. So now five days before Passover. And that to us may not seem significant. That seems like just an incidental detail to add some color to the story. And for the most part, yes, that's what it does. But it also reminds us of a very important truth about Jesus' life that every moment and every detail of his life was on a divine timeline. It was meant to happen exactly as it happened. That Jesus' life and Jesus' mission played out exactly as God had designed it in every detail. One thing the Apostle John makes clear repeatedly throughout his gospel is that Jesus not only knows everything that will happen to, in his life and how it will play out, but that he is actually in control of it. That nothing happens to him and nothing happens in his life unless he gives the green light for it to happen. So that it happens exactly as God has planned and as the prophets had, been, had, had revealed it. So, for instance, to this point in Jesus' life, there had already been a few attempts on his life. But in each case, the plot was foiled, and it was foiled, we see, directly by Jesus, either by them not being able to make a tight enough case to, to bring an accusation against him, or not being able to win the crowd over, or in some cases where he was actually put into a position where they were going to execute him, he just disappears. He finds his way out of the crowd in a way that no one can explain. 
Why does it happen that way? Because Jesus was operating on a particular timeline. He was operating with a particular plan in mind, and it was going to progress in every detail as he designed. So Jesus testifies of that himself in John chapter 10, when he says, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. You see that? He says, no one takes it from me. Not the crowd, not Pilate, not the Roman centurions, not Satan. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So it is clear that no one could do anything to Jesus unless he allowed it to happen. He was on a divine timeline planned by God. And every moment of his life fit perfectly into that divine timeline. Make no mistake, Jesus was not a victim. And Jesus was not assassinated. He wasn't a martyr for a good cause in hopes that his followers would follow suit. Jesus was on a divine timeline and at every moment of his life was in complete and total control of every detail. There were no mistakes that were made. So it is clear that the Father and the Son formulated a plan for the salvation of God's people and every moment and every detail of Jesus' life is in fulfillment of that plan. Those who believed in him were a part of that plan. Those who plotted to kill him played right into his plan. His message, his suffering, his rejection, his death, his resurrection, all were a part of his plan. Nothing was a surprise. It played out exactly as he designed are you understanding that? Right? I've repeated myself several times this morning. You got that? Okay. Was Jesus a victim? No. Was the cross a mistake? No. Is the church plan B because plan A in Jerusalem didn't work? No. It is all a part of his plan. So, just think about that for a second. Because this is the Lord not only of Jesus' own life, this is the Lord of history, right? The creator and sustainer of it all. So point to a moment in your life for me, if you will, if you dare. That's not a, according to his plan as well. Can you think of one? I didn't think so. Remember that. That's a, a little tangent, okay? Come on back now to the text. I want us to understand also, though, that this divine and prophetic timeline is not just applicable to the earthly life of Jesus. There's a bigger story going on, too. There's a bigger timeline. There's a bigger picture happening. The Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 4 that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. To redeem those who were under the law. That tells us the purpose for sending His Son. To save His people from their sins, right? 
That's exactly what the angel said. How did he do it? It wasn't random. It wasn't, well, it took God this long to figure out exactly what he was going to do. And then once he did, no, this was all a part of God's perfect timeline for history. And when the fullness of time had come, when the moment was right, when everything had, had built up to that, that point where Jesus knew, where God knew he was going to culminate this, this movement, then he sent his son. He had worked all the way up to it. So this wasn't just every detail of Jesus' life. This is every moment of history was calculated, was designed, was performed for the purpose of the fullness of time for when the Savior came. Right? That means the calling of Abraham. That means the shenanigans of Jacob. That means the the exodus. That means the establishment of the United Kingdom. That means the divided kingdom, the rise and fall of kings, the sinful cycle of Israel leading to, to freedom and then captivity and then all sorts of crazy things that lead up to the intertestamental period, that lead to the governmental situation and that moment in time for all the earth when Jesus was born, every moment of it was meant to lead to this event. And every moment since has been a, a, a result of that event and is leading up toward the next event when he comes again. Every moment of history is one unified story with one central purpose. God's work of redemption saving his people from their sin, reversing the curse, and restoring his creation. That is the theme of history. That is the ultimate storyline of Scripture. It is a story of redemption and salvation, and it has been the plan of God since eternity past. And every detail is under his control and authority. So it was not a mistake that Jesus was born when he was. It was not a mistake that he was born where he was born. It is not a mistake that the events of Jesus' life tra uh, transpired as they did. And so what we see here, five days before the Passover, during the last week of Jesus' life, there is no detail of this passage that happened by accident. This picture of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey is not a pitiful picture of a guy who tried his best and just couldn't make it happen better. This is a picture that is intended to teach us something important about who Jesus is and what he was up to. And so in light of all the failed attempts on his life, Jesus now at this moment chooses to ride into Jerusalem for the last time and he chooses to trigger the events that would finally lead to his death at just the right time. Not a moment too soon, not a moment too late, so that he could serve as the ultimate Passover lamb, sacrificed in the place of his people to accomplish their deliverance from sin and to give them peace with God. Now, the rest of the verse 
says that on that day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Jesus wasn't the only one who traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover week. There were many who traveled from all over Israel to the city. And the city was abuzz with talk about Jesus. And now word had come that this Jesus, who at this point was still popular among many in the crowds, but was an enemy of the religious leaders. At this point, the crowds hear, Jesus is on his way. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. And so they rush out to meet him on the way. And that fateful week is set in motion on God's timetable. And so we've seen the prophetic timeline or the prophetic timetable of this event. I want us to see now, secondly, as we move into verse 13, the prophetic praise. The prophetic praise. The timing of this event is significant, and so is the reaction of the crowd. We read this. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. While the assembly of this crowd may seem to our reading to be spur of the moment. Ah, he's coming. Ah, let's go. Their behavior, their actions were not spur of the moment. They were not random. You say, why did they pick up palm branches? Well, because that's the, those are the only ones around. No, there was a reason they picked up palm branches. And so we read that many in the crowd took or cut for themselves branches of palm trees and went out to meet them. That was, that was not a random act. Nor was it simple or easy. They weren't just picking up whatever branches they could find on the ground. There likely wouldn't have been enough. They were cutting them. They were going out of their way. It was calculated. It was intentional. There was a reason they went out of their way to cut and carry palm branches. It doesn't have anything to do with Passover. In fact, in, in terms of their feasts, palm branches were associated with the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, which isn't in play here in this scene. It seems to me that the significance of these palm branches has come from the intertestamental period. All right, I'm going to take my pastor glasses off and I'll put on my professor glasses. All right, here we go. A little history lesson. The intertestamental period is that period of 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. 400 silent years in there. And there was a lot of stuff that happened in that time period. During that time, Israel had been under the oppression of an empire called the Seleucid Empire, a major center of Greek culture and a longtime historical enemy of Israel. That empire was from a region that encompasses modern-day Syria, Iran, Iraq, and the surrounding areas. There's nothing new under the sun, is there? A couple centuries before Jesus was born, there was a Jewish revolt led by a man named Simon Maccabeus. That revolt was against the Seleucids that liberated the Jews from their oppression. After they are liberated... 
and they begin to celebrate their, deli their deliverance, palm branches factored significantly into their celebration and into the, into the processional of celebration um, of that deliverance and of the rededication of the temple around that time. And so as a result, from that time on, it appears palm branches had become a national symbol of sorts. I suppose kind of like the eagle is for us. And it stood for victory and deliverance. It was a national symbol. In fact, from what I understand, the palm branch factored into even an image that was put onto some of their money. Right? This was a national symbol, the palm branch. So these palm branches that the crowd uses are not random, but they are of historical significance. They tell us a little something about what was on the mind of the crowd as they went out to meet this spectacular fellow. They don't really know who he is. They don't have an accurate picture of who he is. But you read later in John 12, they know he raised Lazarus from the dead. At least some of them do. They know what they've been told about him as the rumors have spread around Israel. And by this point in Jesus' life, there was much interest in him and the things that he, has, that he had done. But John makes it clear, many of the, uh, the apostles and, and the Gospels make it clear, that this interest in Jesus was not true faith. It was filled with wrong expectations of who Jesus really is. And we'll see that as this plays out. It's kind of like today, where there are many, many, many people who are interested in Jesus and who appreciate Jesus to a certain degree, but they don't follow Jesus as their Savior and Lord. That seems to be going on with the crowd here. They know that there's something special about him. They have some expectations about him that will soon be confounded. It seems that they had seen his miracles and they had heard about him raising Lazarus from the dead, and they had in their minds this idea that Jesus had finally come around and embraced his role as a conquering hero, and that he was now finally coming into Jerusalem to organize a resistance and to overthrow Rome, as Simon had done with the Seleucids a couple centuries before. And so this crowd is excited about the arrival of Jesus in Jerusalem, and they are perhaps looking to him as their political and social deliverer, their national hero. And so swept up in the enthusiasm of the moment, this crowd cries out, Hosanna! You know what that word means? It means save now. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because the angel had told, had announced that his name would be Emmanuel, God with us, and We'll call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Save now. And this crowd with mixed ideas and mixed feelings about what this Jesus was actually here to do is crying out with one accord, save now. Where is that coming from? Well, again, that's not random either. This term, Hosanna, is a term that the Jews knew very well from a section of the Psalms that is known as the Hallel. 
encompasses Psalms 113 to 118. These psalms were songs that were used specifically in the temple during prominent festivals like Passover. Right? So this is the song that's already in their heads during this week. And so now as they pro proclaim this name, as they announce this word, as they say Hosanna toward Jesus, we see not just a historical significance, but also a biblical one. The historical significance is that the crowd is expecting him to come and be their conquering hero. The biblical significance ties what they're saying and thus what Jesus is doing into what Scripture has already revealed. The crowd is, in fact, singing or proclaiming from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, which we've already heard this morning. Save us, we pray, O Lord. That's the Hosanna part. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. That's what they're singing here in these verses. And they even add the interpretive phrase, even the king of Israel. So in that moment, as they sing this song from the scriptures, this crowd proclaims in no uncertain terms that their hope is in Jesus as their long-expected deliverer. Now, we won't spend much time this morning on whether or not this was true saving faith. As the events of Jesus last week bear out, we find out it was not true saving faith for most of them. Their expectation of what this Messiah or this Deliverer would look like was misguided, and it didn't match up to what Jesus actually did, which is why many in this crowd by the end of the week are going to be crying out for his crucifixion. He was not there to overthrow Rome. He wasn't here to be a political deliverer. He was there to save his people from their sin. You realize our hope is not politics? You realize that our hope in Jesus is not a political hope? You realize that our greatest problem is not politics? Our greatest problem, our greatest need, is deliverance from our own sin. And you realize that that's what Jesus came here to do? And if you're looking to Jesus for deliverance from anything else instead of this, if you think Jesus is merely here to give you an easy life, or if he is merely here just to... to turn your government around. Certainly he can do those things, but if that's all you're expecting from him, you're going to be disappointed. And you're actually not focused on your greatest need. And as the people in the crowd here begin to figure this out, many will become disillusioned with him, much like Judas did. And they'll turn on him. Now, it's important to note here that to this point in Jesus' life, he had, on occasion, received praise like this already. And to this point, whenever he receives praise like this from a crowd, he silences it. He refuses it. He'll disappear from their midst. 
It wasn't just execution that some people were after. There was a moment when they surrounded him to make him king by force. And Jesus says, no, no, that's not how this is going to work. But this time, even though he knows it's not from true faith that this crowd is saying these things, this time he accepts the praise. Whether they truly believed in him as Savior or not, I'm sure some people in the crowd did. But the general flow, the general thrust was was that this was not true saving faith for many of them. But regardless of that, what they were proclaiming was biblical truth. What they were proclaiming is prophetic truth of who he is and what he came to do. And his time had come. And so it's time to make the announcement. And they do. It's time to provoke the religious leaders. And he will. And it's time to go to the cross to die for his people. And he will. That leads us to verses 14 and 15 where we see, thirdly, the prophetic parade. The prophetic parade. We see in verse 14, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. I suppose you could say the parade began in verse 13, but here is where Jesus actually sits down to ride into Jerusalem. The focus is on the fact that he rode on a donkey, hardly a royal steed, right? And here's where we get to the not-so-triumphal part of this triumphal entry. Can you imagine what the people thought when they saw this? It's a, it's a donkey. Not a horse. Well, okay, whatever. We're outside the city limits. I guess we'll just go with it. Right. There wasn't anything about this image that caused anybody to stand to attention, put their hand over their heart, and say, thank heaven our deliverer is here, right? Look at that. That's not the image Jesus gave here. In fact, the indication is that this was a small donkey, one on which Jesus would have had to bend his legs to keep them off of the ground. So already, before he even gets into the city, he is breaking down these false expectations. As he rides, the other gospel accounts of this scene tell us that the crowd spread their coats on the road, which is another act of respect toward royalty. So you have this tension between respect for who they think he is and him showing who he really is, and it really turns out to be a bit of an awkward situation, doesn't it? But it's also a prophetic scene. To go along with everything else in the passage. Again, Jesus did this on purpose, and he did it to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. Just as John says here, this is just one more of many prophecies that show beyond question or debate that Jesus really is the Son of God, that He is the Lord of all, that He is the Savior of His people. What we see here is a direct fulfillment of a messianic prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, 
verse 9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O Jerusalem, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I think it's a little ironic how it was translated here in John chapter 12. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Fear not, people, because here comes your king, riding on a baby donkey. Ironic, isn't it? In light of the expectations, much of Jesus Christ's life was ironic. And the point of the verse in Zechariah 9 is to show the nature of Christ's mission and of his kingdom and how different it is from man's expectations. He entered this city triumphantly, yes, when we Christians look back on it. But in the moment, there wasn't much triumphant about it. He enters this city humble. Not as the king of war, but as the prince of peace. His mission at that moment was not to overthrow Rome. His mission was to bring his people peace with God. That was their greatest need, whether they understood that or not. Now, as we look at any prophecy in Scripture, there are multiple levels, multiple stages of fulfillment, right? And so we know that there is a, a sort of foreshadowing here of something greater that is to come. Yes, one day, as many Old Testament prophecies teach, He will come again to earth. He will be greeted by His people. And at that time, when he comes, he will come, not riding on a donkey, but riding on a war horse as the great conqueror and judge who will judge the living and the dead. We read about that in Revelation chapter 19. And he will establish eternal peace in the new heaven and the new earth. But for now, in this passage, he is the humble, suffering servant fulfilling the Father's plan, coming to bear the penalty of His people's sins and to give them peace with God. The crowd in this scene could not see or understand that, much like many today cannot see or understand that. We think our greatest problem is physical, something we can handle, something we can touch, something that we look at in this world. We think that's our greatest problem. And, and I don't mean to minimize the problems that we face in a sinful and fallen world. They are great. They are tremendous. And praise God, they will be undone one day. But that is not our greatest need. Our greatest need is that by nature we are hostile to, we are alienated from, we are in rebellion against the holy God who made us, and we are under His judgment. And if we are not reconciled to God, if we are not on His side, if we have not made peace with God before that conquering hero returns, we will be forever under His judgment and eternal death. You see, that is a greater need. That is the ultimate need of mankind. That is the need that Christ came to meet. That is why He died on the cross. 
Because the only way to make peace with God is to pay for our sin, and we could never do it. And so he died on the cross. Why? So that God would pour out his wrath on him instead. So that all who believe in Christ could have eternal life, would never perish, but would have peace with God forever. Sometimes those who believe in Christ don't get out of their difficult situations in this earth, in this life. That's where 1 Peter comes in. Because God's people are suffering people. But God's people suffer because they have hope. Why? Because the victory was won here at the cross. The crowd doesn't understand this. They don't understand their need. They don't understand the purpose of Jesus' mission in this moment. So they keep ushering him into the city with a wrong expectation about what he came there to do. As one commentator states about this, the meaning and the happenings of the life of Jesus are not open for every unregenerate person to see. They are revealed only by the Holy Spirit of God. And that's what's going on here. For those who have eyes to see it, they can see what makes this scene a triumphal entry is not the steed, it's not the crowd, it's not even the faith of the disciples, because we're going to see in a moment they don't even understand what's going on here yet. What makes this so triumphant is to see how it is connected to the Old Testament prophecies, how it communicates who Jesus is and what he came to do and how he actually accomplished his mission. Right? This is the beginning of the week. And so much more of this is going to play out throughout the week. And so that brings us finally to verse 16, where we see the prophetic significance. The prophetic significance of what's going on here. We read in verse 16, His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. What's that saying? In the moment, the disciples couldn't see the forest. All they could see was the trees. They didn't understand. They couldn't see the significance of this. But after he died, they still didn't understand. Then he rose again, and now it's starting to make sense. Right? Right? Now Jesus is starting to open their eyes so that they understand. So they understand what? Not just the significance of what had been done to them, to him, but the significance of the fact that it happened to him exactly as the Old Testament had taught. Remember the disciples on the road to Emmaus at the end of Luke? What was Jesus teaching them in that moment before he even revealed to them who he was? He taught them that all of these things happened as they were prophesied in Scripture. That is the significance of these things. So it wasn't just the crowd that didn't understand in this moment. The disciples also didn't understand. The expectation of the Messiah as a conquering king at that moment who would overthrow Rome and deliver them from their very real earthly trouble had so clouded their minds. It had been drilled into them from childhood. Much like Jesus as our co-pilot or our genie has been in 
today's culture. It had been drilled in so that it was very difficult, nigh impossible, for them to see the truth about who he really was until the Holy Spirit came and did an illuminating work in their hearts. Then, when these things started to play out and they looked back on them, they were able to start seeing. He didn't come here as a conquering hero. If he had, he would have been a failure. But that's not why he came. He came here to be a sacrificial savior. And on that front, he was incredibly successful. Perfectly successful. So they start to understand more and more what Jesus had been teaching them all along. Putting the pieces together in their minds what Christ had promised them. You know, he had told them he was going to die. He had told them several times, I'm going to die. I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. Now it's starting to make sense. And now as it begins to make sense, they start to understand the significance of this awkward moment. Why he was on a donkey. What the palm branches symbolize. What, what about this crowd that... that seems to be all for him in this moment and was nowhere to be found later in, in the week. Or, at worst, was crying out for his crucifixion. What is the significance of all of this? What is the significance of everything else that he has done to this point when Jesus not only raises Lazarus from the dead, but says, I am the resurrection and the life. Right? He's talking about something that's not merely an earthly kingdom. They're starting to understand that now. And as they start to understand that, they start to see the gospel that is about to be spread from their midst, by their mouths, around the world. And these men will soon stop being the quivering, fearful, bumbling, whatever you want to call them. I don't want to say idiots because they weren't idiots. They just didn't understand they're going to rise up from that to being the powerful leaders of the church as it is established and as the gospel spreads around the world and carries on through history down to you and me. And so because of Jesus, because of his work in them, and because of the work of the Holy Spirit through them, we have a record of Jesus' life and ministry. We have a big picture revealed to us and explain to us in the scriptures as it is here. And what does it tell us? It tells us of the Lord Jesus Christ as he truly is. One commentator sums it up this way. He says this, Jesus was a king like no other. Instead of the pomp and circumstance associated with earthly kings, he was meek and lowly. Instead of defeating his enemies by force, he conquered them by dying. But though he was despised and rejected at his first advent, Jesus Christ will one day return as the all-conquering King of kings and Lord of lords, who will shatter his enemies 
and destroy them with a fierce and final judgment. Just as he perfectly fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies regarding his first coming, so he will come again in exactly the, the manner foretold by the Scriptures. This is a Jesus. This is a king, a conquering hero who was not defeated at the cross, but who was actually victorious at the cross, as is testified by his resurrection, as is testified by the spread of the gospel around the world throughout history as is testified by our own testimony, that we are not made righteous and at peace with God by our own efforts, but by the finished work of Christ on the cross. And as is given in our testimony of an eternal hope, our eternal inheritance, that he is going to return. And we are going to be with him forever. So this passage is a unique picture of Jesus. It's an ironic picture of his mission and his kingdom. But it is a striking reminder that Jesus is the promised Messiah, that he works on God's timetable, not ours, that he works for God's ends, not ours, that he works according to God's plan, not our expectations. We see here and in everything that this passage signifies that he is the theme and the central figure of all Scripture. He is the creator and the upholder of all things. He died on the cross to save his people from their sins. He is risen. He is coming again to finish his new creation, free from the penalty, power, and presence of all sin. We also notice that among the crowd, then as today, there is interest in Jesus. Sometimes even excitement at the benefits and the amazing things that he does. But that doesn't mean that one is following him as Savior and Lord. It is possible to be religious without being regenerate. It is possible to sing songs of praise to Jesus and yet not know him. And this crowd demonstrates that. And so the issue here is not whether or not you believe that he exists. The issue is not whether or not you like him or appreciate him. It is all about who you believe he is and where you stand with him as to whether or not he is your Savior, your Lord, and your Master. Religion is pointless without him. Religion is empty without Him at the center of our love, of our mind, of our actions. And so my question is, first, do you believe in Him? But then if you do, do you confess Him as Lord? Do you love Him with all that you are and all that you have? Do you dedicate your life to Him, to His mission, to serving Him every moment? Or are you just trying to use Him for your own ends? Or are you just trying to salve your sinful conscience 
by singing songs to him on Sunday. We are meant, when we encounter Jesus in this way, we are meant to see him in light of the storyline of all scripture. And we are meant to stand in awe of him. We are meant to fall at his feet and worship him. We are meant to call on him as our savior. Not our political savior, but our but the savior from our sin. We are meant to follow and serve him as our lord. To live for the day when we see him face to face. For he is risen. So the question is this. Is King Jesus your savior or your judge? This picture of a king riding into a city and be, being greeted by his people has two aspects to it. Conquering hero and conquering judge. He is both. Which one is he to you? If he is your savior, then you have eternal hope. You can live with confidence and joy. And you can be holy in this sinful world. Why? Because you look forward with great anticipation to a day that is greater than any day this earth has ever known. A day when we are united to our savior face to face. Christian, be renewed in your joy today. In Christ, as we enter Passion Week, enjoy the Easter eggs. Enjoy the springtime. Enjoy the colors. But most of all, fix your mind and your heart on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His death in your place. His resurrection that sealed His victory over sin and the grave and the eternal inheritance you have in Him by faith. Live in this world as if that is the heart of everything you are and everything you do. But friends, if King Jesus is not your Savior, He is your judge. And you stand guilty of rebellion before God. Holy treason. Cosmic treason because of sin. And you stand before him exposed in your sin and condemned already. You are meant to look at this Jesus and bow before him in submission. To confess your sins. To turn away. To repent of those sins. To believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Lord of all. To believe on Him as your Master. To follow Him. Friends, by God's grace, Jesus doesn't have to be your judge for eternal condemnation. He can be your Savior. God has made a way so that all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ can and will be saved. Christian, rejoice in your Savior today. If you're among us and you're not a Christian, I beg you, I plead with you, 
repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is your King. Let's pray.